There we are. All right. Good morning, everybody. Mitchell's a little bit taller than me, so I'm going to adjust this. It's always room for a height joke when you have a uh, podium, right? So I'm going to use that up every time. Uh, I apologize ahead of time. Uh, I can't hear out of either one of my ears. Um, have you ever used hydrogen peroxide to clean out your ears? Anybody? Some of you? You shouldn't. The older people are like, no, don't do that. Um, Caitlin has had a blocked ear. I, I've done this in the past, and so I recommended it to her. And so she did it, and it worked great. And I was like, oh, I want to try it too. My ears were fine. Uh, they weren't fine after I did it. So I still can't hear out of my ears. I apologize if I'm being louder than, um, than is acceptable, but that's, you know, that's this morning. That's who I am this morning. So I'm going to move this too. My name is Tommy. Um, how's everyone doing? Good. We have a slimmer crowd this week as people are going home for Thanksgiving, uh, but I'm really happy to be able to be here. Uh, we're going to be continuing on in our sermon series through the book of Deuteronomy. We're, we're nearing the end at this point. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to open up to Deuteronomy 20, um, and we're going to be camped out there. Um, so a couple weeks ago, as you're opening up there, um, a couple weeks ago is my daughter Chloe's uh, second birthday. Um, so she's two now. She's downstairs with the kids. Uh, and Facebook does this thing where, where they make you feel really old and nostalgic uh, by showing you, like, photos from the past, right? So they show you, on this day, two years ago, your baby was a tiny little morsel of a human being. And there she is right there. Um, that's Chloe. I love her very much. And so it, it kind of blows my mind uh, that this child that I once could kind of hold in my hands like this um, this little baby that really, they have to like learn how to, to eat and they have to learn how to sleep. Um, this tiny little fragile infant that, I, I, that really couldn't do very much on her own at all in just two years has, has turned into this. I have a short clip for you. She's on YouTube. This is one of my more proud moments as a parent. Not the suggesting of doing something dangerous, but you'll see, it's, it's pretty cool. Oh, she's okay, she's okay. It's all right, she's got a real cushiony diaper. It's okay. Is your anxiety mounting as you're watching this? Is it like you feel that tightness in your chest? Chloe doesn't. I got her. She's okay. She's all right. Yeah. And she made it. There you go. All right, Chloe. That was a proud moment for me. Um, so what I've been reflecting on is, is not just Chloe's growth in, in her size and in her physical ability to do something like that, but uh, what's been fascinating me is, is her intellectual growth and, and kind of just the way that, that she's been progressing and the way that she perceives the world around her. And even though um, she was able to climb that weird, you know, tall ladder thing, it doesn't mean that she's a completely fearless baby. She doesn't have um, what you would call like a daredevil syndrome. 
Um, there are plenty of things that, that still make her nervous, make her scared, make her run over to mommy and daddy and, and cling on to our, uh, onto our legs um, as if her life depended on it. And, and, and the question that I kind of have is I see things that make her scared and, and things that don't make her scared. I, I wonder, um, what causes her to be afraid of some things and not others? Like, why is she afraid of heights in some contexts but not other contexts like that? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious like this. So, you know, I think about how, how do fears get developed? And especially as I have a, a hand in raising a child, do I play a role in the fears that, that she develops or doesn't develop? And why are some people, when you extend this to a broader scale, why are some people scared of some things that other people are just not afraid of at all? Why are some people in this room more scared of that situation that happened in the past than I was in the moment filming it? Right? These are questions that I have. Uh, maybe because you're a better parent than me, right? You have like, you know, better fear um, triggers in your brain. But the question is, I think we, we can look at this morning, is what, what is fear? What is this experience that we all have as fear? And, and how do we deal with fear? How are we supposed to be dealing with fear? In this section of Deuteronomy, uh, we're going to be talking about war. And, and God here in this text is giving clear guidelines for how Israel is to engage in warfare with their enemies. Uh, and these guidelines are both for a spiritual and a practical preparation for all of Israel. It's not a light text by any means. This isn't like a t-ball sermon that you kind of line up and you can just knock out of the park. Um, But I think that if we can wrestle through some of the challenging parts of the text, we'll be able to see an aspect of God um, and and how he fits into the human experience amidst some of the most scary, horrific, terrifying experiences and scenarios that we as humans can go through. We'll see that faith in God is, is not just this fluffy happiness, this general good vibe or good feeling, um, but that faith is, is a lifeline that we can cling on to during the most turbulent and dangerous seasons of our lives. And we'll also just get an honest glimpse into what it meant for Israel to be following God through the good, but then also the super challenging as well, and, and, and what the level of faithful commitment um, that God calls his people to. So let me pray for us, and, and we'll dive into the text. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people that are here. Thank you for um, how, how you've created a space for us to be able to worship you freely um, without fear, God. I pray for us this morning as we read your word um, that you would be revealing yourself to us, um, that we would see uh, just what a mighty warrior you are, God. Lord, I pray for the fears and anxieties that are here in this room with us. Lord, I pray that um, that as we read your word, as, as we see your face, that we would be able to, um, to dismiss the fears that we have in light of the larger realities that we live in. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start at verse 1. If you have your Bibles, um, you can read it there or it'll be on the screen behind me. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So the taking of the promised land and the growth and expansion of Israel as a nation is going to come through a process, uh, it's going to happen through a process that every other nation came into existence at this time went through. It's going to go through hard-fought war. And God is telling Israel that, that when they line up for war on the field of battle, that they're not to be afraid because God was going to be with them. So that's a pretty easy request, right? When you're at war, don't be afraid. 
But let's not gloss over this one verse, because I, I think what God is calling Israel to it is not easy by any means. It might be one of the hardest things that he calls Israel to do. Um, it, it can be simple to fly through this, the, this first verse, because no matter how many video games we play, how many movies we see, we'll never really experience or understand the terror and fear of being in ancient warfare. We'll never be able to understand it. Ancient warfare, and we've talked about this during the series, it, it's, it's hand-to-hand combat. Um, it was grisly, it, it was violent, it was brutal. It would require you to, to engage your enemy face-to-face. And you're standing across from a person who wants to kill you and is going to try to, try to do so um, in a few minutes. And what's even more terrifying than, than seeing that person that would be standing across from you who, who would be trying to come and kill you with a sword was, was then a giant war horse, a four to five times your size and your strength, outfitted with chariots behind them, guarding other enemies um, who would be riding full speed at you, knowing that the army behind those horses is much more vast than the army that you stand with on your side of the battlefield. Can you even imagine some of the fear there? We can't fully imagine it, but but we can kind of get into the zone of the terror that would be there. And so we're so far removed from this context, it's it's nearly impossible to do so, but um, if we were standing there, imagine yourself as a soldier in the Israelite army. Um, For Israel, this would become a common occurrence for them. Uh, being outnumbered, being outmatched, being out-equipped. It's just kind of their, 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 their military campaign. That's kind of what it looks like. Um, we have to remember that Israel isn't like Leonidas's army. This isn't 300. These aren't people who were bred to be super soldiers from a, a really young age. And, and not too long ago, they were, they were enslaved. They were bricklayers. And for, for, for uh, a different nation, they were slaves, and they were hardly a force to be uh, challenging other nations that have spent hundreds of years perfecting the art of war and military strategy through multiple and long successful campaigns. So this is who Israel is, not this like huge warring nation. They're a group of ragtag people. We're talking about a nomadic group of desert dwellers, no military training other than them just having to figure it out. They just, like, here, go figure it out. You have to conquer these people. But regardless, God tells them, when you're lined up against armies that are bigger than you, stronger than you, faster than you, better equipped than you, more vast, more experienced, more seasoned, more, pretty much more everything than you, um, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. This is an imperative command from God, not, not a suggestion or, or a plea which kind of seems insensitive, right, on some level. I, I mean, uh, no one who is really scared likes being told, don't be scared. No one does. Like, if you think about, like, when you're really scared and your friend's like, hey, man, don't be, don't be afraid. What are you scared of? You're like, I am I'm afraid right now. I am scared. And nothing that you're telling me is helping me not be scared. No one likes being told um, to not be scared. But the reality is that we, we see it over and over again in Scripture. We see God telling people to not be afraid. We, we see people telling other people uh, to not be afraid. And, and I think one of my favorite instances um, are, are with the appearance of angels. So in Matthew 28, uh, we have this instance where it, it says his appearance, this is talking about an angel, his appearance was like lightning um, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, uh, the guards trembled and became like dead men. 
And, uh, but the angel said to, to the woman, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Can you imagine seeing an angel? So think about this for a minute. Have you ever seen a lightning strike somewhere? I have another video. I went video crazy this week. I've never used a video in a sermon, so watch this video. That's pretty intense, huh? It gets more intense, don't worry. It's pretty intense. All right, we're, we're, we're good. All right, so that's a lightning strike. The video said it was five meters away from them. There's a video on YouTube that is a compilation of near lightning strikes that you should watch. I couldn't play it because there were tons of expletives in every single... And, and all the clips, people just turn, are running away from the camera, swearing, and just saying, oh my goodness. So um, lightning is terrifying. Um, I love that Matthew, as he's telling his account of what had happened, um, and he gets to this part where the angel appears, and I, kinda, I can imagine his friends being, what was it like? What did the angel look like? Was it, you know, did it have wings on its back? Was it really beautiful? Uh, was it like a chubby baby? Did it have, you know, like, what did it look like? And Matthew's like trying to come up with an idea of how to explain an angel. He's like, um, it looked like it was like a lightning strike. Just a lightning strike, right? And you just saw a lightning strike. That, there's, it, it is beautiful, but in a terrifying way. It's no joke either, because in, in, in verse 4, um, the guards, who at this point are seasoned military veterans, they, they trembled, right? So like they're shaking in their boots, and then they became like dead men, which I'm not exactly sure what that means. I don't know if they like just like fell over because they were so scared, but they were terrified. And what were the angel's first words? Don't be afraid. So if your first words are ever, don't be afraid, you're probably scary, right? (laughs) So surely, if there's a time where being terrified as an adult is okay, it's when you meet a heavenly being who looks like a walking lightning bolt in front of you. Um, But regardless, the angel says, don't be afraid. So if we see God, people, and even angels um, giving imperative commands to not be afraid, what, what does that tell us about the nature of fear? I think on a very basic level, it tells us that fear is a choice. It's something that you can choose to do or to not do. At least on some level, fear is a choice. It would have to be, or else it wouldn't make any sense for it to be treated as a consciously chosen action um, that is repeated in Scripture over and over again. But I think it, it starts making sense when we understand what fear is. Whoa. Anyone scared right now? It's getting pretty intense. So here's what fear is, and, and, and this is a working definition for us this morning. Uh, fear is believing that something bad is going to happen to us based on our assessment of a circumstance. All right, so is that fair? Fear is believing that something bad is going to happen to us given our assessment of the situation. And so um, I just went to Disney with my sister and our whole family. My sister was there, uh, but Caitlin was there. My whole family was there. Um, and, and for my sister, as long as I've known her, she's been terrified of going on roller coasters, terrified, uh, which was hard on her because every single one of our family vacations was to a roller coaster park. I kid you not, growing up. 
but for her, her fear of roller coasters is based on her belief that, that she will likely die if she goes on the ride. She'll, she'll tell you this. And this might be a bit of an exaggeration, but on some level, right, um, she's terrified to go on a roller coaster because she, she doesn't believe that the ride is as safe as it actually is, that, that there is a, a sizable possibility that, that she'll at least be seriously maimed if she goes on a ride. And, and so her fear of roller coasters um, is her belief, uh, based on the assessment, um, that rides are not actually that safe. I have some photos here of uh, my sister. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> well, you can imagine it. This is, <laughs> I'm not sure why it scaled that horribly, but you can't even see my sister because in the front row, she's like that blob in the middle, and her head is ducked behind my dad's body. Let's go to the next one and see if it says, oh, that one's pretty bad too. Uh, you can't see her face. It's of sheer terror. I totally understand. I could have just explained this to you without showing the picture. Uh, there she is again. These are rides that Chloe is going on, by the way. Uh, th- this was a Dumbo ride that went up and down. And so she, I mean, she's always a good sport. She goes on them when, when I convinced her to, but her head is, you can't even see her. You'll never know what she looks like. So that's my sister there. So her assessment of the circumstance, of the situation in these rides, and, and the reality of the situation, and the, the actual reality of the, of the situation, they don't really line up. So her assessment and reality are not like together like this. Does that make sense? Uh, she's not going to actually go flying off of the Dumbo ride like 20 feet away um, and, and die. I'm pretty sure, I'm pr- really, really sure that that's not going to happen. Um, but she believes that she might. Right? Like, it's in her brain that at any second, this thing can go from zero to 150 and just, like, launch her out of the ride. And so I don't want to harp on my sister uh, anymore. So I'll go back to, to little Chloe, right? She's two years old. Um, she's terrified of the vacuum cleaner. Um, she's really scared of the vacuum cleaner, not because it's emitting some sort of fear force at her, right? She's walking through, and it turns on, and she's not, like, pelted with fear force, right? Um, it, it's uncommon to her. She doesn't understand it, um, and, and the machine is, in her cute little brain, is just kind of, like, out to get her and a threat to her, like it might hurt her. Um, we don't have, like, a Roomba either. This is just a normal vacuum that, that goes like this, and, and she's just terrified of it. Um, but her assessment of the situation is that this thing is going to bring me harm. I, I, I'm not sure. I don't understand this thing. Um, and that's why she is afraid of the vacuum. And so I'm disassembling this section so much because I think it's helpful for us to understand this universal experience of fear that we might not always talk about um, too much or, or maybe just not enough. Um, fear isn't bad. I'm not saying that fear is a bad thing. And sometimes fear includes a correct assessment of our circumstances. Um, and if it's not listened to, uh, the circumstance or the situation can lead to pain and hurt. So I'm not saying, hey, be fearless in everything that you do. Go jump off cliffs and run into the street and be crazy. And so I think this leads me to a conclusion uh, for when it's okay for us to be able to tell other people to not be afraid. And the one time that it's okay for us to tell someone to not be afraid is, that, is when we have complete assurance, 100% assurance, that their fear is based on an incorrect assessment of their situation. That's the only time it's okay to tell somebody that it's okay to not be afraid. Um, this is why I can tell my sister uh, to not be afraid of riding on a roller coaster. 
Because I know that she's not going to fly out of the, the five-point harness that they put on her um, and die. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, this is why I can, I can pull Chloe up and, and we can walk over to the vacuum cleaner um, as it's on. Um, and, and I can tell her to not be afraid of it because I know that it's not going to eat her, right? It's a vacuum cleaner. This is why an angel can tell Mary and the guards to not be afraid because the angel knows that it's not there to harm them. Even though the people might be terrified that they're about to die, the angel knows, hey, I'm not here to hurt you. I might look terrifying, but don't be afraid. And this is why God can tell Israel um, to not be afraid of their enemies. Even when the situation to them would appear that the, the, the enemies are mightier, are stronger, and more numerous, um, because God has complete assurance that Israel's fears are based on an incorrect assessment of their own situation. And how do we know that God is sure that their fears are based on an incorrect assessment or, or some bad math that they're doing? Because he says right after that, for the Lord your God is with you. So don't be afraid. The Lord your God is with you. He, he's correcting their fear. Now, this is not your typical halftime prep talk or pregame pep talk. Um, he's not getting Israel all pumped up for battle. He's not puffing them up and telling them that, that they're awesome, that they're super strong, that, that, that they don't have to be afraid because even though you guys are small, you're super strong, that it's not about the size of the dog in the fight. It's, it's the size of the fight in the dog. Have you heard that phrase before? Right? So like typical halftime speeches to get underdogs all riled up to come back in the second half and win. Um, that's not what God is doing here. He, he's not telling them, hey, you got, look, you might look like a bad situation, but you're going to come out of this okay because you guys are awesome and you have the heart to win this war. Um, that's not what God is saying. Um, God is not saying any of this because it is, has nothing to do with Israel and their army at all. At all. It has nothing to do with Israel and has everything to do with who God is. God says, don't be afraid because I'm with you. Right? This is what I tell my little daughter. I can say, hey, don't worry, daddy's here. I'm going to protect you. God is saying the same thing to Israel. He says, don't be afraid of strong men and big chariots and sharp swords because the God who created them out of the dust of the earth is fighting on your side. That's why you don't be afraid. If Israel is afraid, it's because they're, they're assessing their circumstances without God in the picture. Right? They're doing the math and counting the numbers and not accounting for this, this huge force that's on their side. They're just looking at what they can see and perceive around them. And as if this isn't enough, I love what God adds after this. He says, For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So God's like, we've done this dance before, right? Like, this isn't anything new that I'm asking you to do. Uh, we've done this dance where you're the weak and feeble one, and, and, and I rescue and liberate you from the most powerful empire on earth. Like, this isn't anything new that I'm asking you to do. Um, we've done this thing where you're, you're this lowly group of ex-slaves kind of wandering around, and I'm guiding you, I'm providing for you, I'm cultivating you uh, into a nation with a home. So, so God is like, I've done, we're, we're, this is... This is in line with what we've been doing. Um, this isn't anything new. So what can we pull away from this one verse? Well, I think we can pull three things away from this. One, um, God's way for Israel is not an easy way, uh, and there are legitimate things that he calls his people to do that might be scary or fear-triggering. 
right? So this isn't, they're not just coasting through life as as an easy experience on like the Jesus Express where everything is just super easy. No, God's like, you're going to go to war. You're going to go to war against really scary people who are much bigger with much more experience than you have. So I think that the simple truth uh, that we can pull away from this verse obviously has vast implications. Um, And I don't want to spend a lot of time chasing these rabbit trails, but the reality is that there are countless miraculous and easier ways um, that God can grow Israel into a nation, but he he doesn't. He chooses this way. It is a hard-fought, challenging, terrifying experience. Um, Israel will sweat and bleed as they follow God. I think that's something that we can see from this one verse. Second, I think that... um, it is clearly possible that the fears that we have, um, that Israel has, stems from an incorrect assessment of their situation um, or of circumstances that have larger realities um, that we cannot perceive with just our physical eyes. So we see this over and over again in Scripture. Um, but on paper, Israel would have good reason to not be afraid. I'm sorry, would have good reason to be afraid uh, while engaging in warfare. And as I mentioned earlier, um, they have no training, no experience, they have inferior weapons, less people. Those are all really good reasons to be afraid when you're going up against bigger, stronger armies. Uh, but their assessment of, of imminent doom, imminent doom um, should rightfully lead to fear, right? Um, if it weren't for the fact that God was going to be doing the fighting for them which they're not computing into their fear. If Israel was going to be afraid of an opposing army, um, it was because they are incorrectly assessing the situation and not accounting for this larger reality. So fears can stem from incorrect assessments of reality. Um, Three, it is possible for us to actively choose to not be afraid. I think this is a big one. Um, But we can only make this decision when we're actually given a reason to not be afraid. So God doesn't call Israel to not be afraid without reason. That's irrational. That doesn't make sense. Um, God's command for us to not be afraid is not like somebody telling you, hey, don't be afraid, jump out of this airplane, go. Right? Because that's irrational. It makes no sense. Um, What they would tell you is that, hey, you're attached to a professional who has 10,000 jumps under their belts. They know what they're doing, and they're going to get you to the ground safely, don't be afraid. Have fun. And they kick you out the door, right? That's what they do. Fear is, is not a force or something that happens to us um, that we have no control over um, when God is in the picture. So putting our trust and our faith in God is a fantastic, rational reason to not be afraid. And that's what we see Israel doing. Um, and I think that that's what we can do as well. So that's a lot for just one verse. Um, But the command to not be afraid when going into war carries quite a bit of weight to it. Um, But think about how grand this one verse is for a minute. This is God preparing Israel for war. And God is essentially, rule number one, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. That's, That's your first rule. I'll be fighting your battles for you. And the first step for God's people to prepare for war would be to have a right mind about what is about to happen, to have a correct assessment of their situation that wasn't about them um, or what they could do, what they could accomplish, how strong they were, but it would be uh, about God and what he would be doing for them on the battlefield. 
So having the right mind was a part of the preparation. But there's more to it that God lays out. So in verse 2, he says, And when you draw near to battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. God is not only telling Israel to have a right mind when preparing for war, but um, a part of the practical preparation for them requires encouragement. Encouragement. Um, I think we need to take a step back right now and see how unconventional this is. So God is literally giving them a pre-war checklist of like, before you go to battle, make sure these things happen. Um, And while other armies are most likely, if they have a pre-war checklist, they're most likely sharpening their swords, they're hammering out their armor, they're they're honing their skills, they're preparing the horses, they're developing strategies and communicating the battle plans. God, the general of Israel's army, is saying, don't be afraid, encourage one another. Those are the two things we're going to focus on before we go to war with another nation. This is unconventional. What we should start seeing is that God's way is not like man's way. God's people are being called to face conflict in a completely different way than the world around them is preparing for conflict. And at first glance, it might seem strange. It's even a little bit laughable if you were a military strategist looking at Israel, kind of standing around, focusing on not being afraid and encouraging one another as their pre-war ritual. But it's only strange and laughable for those who don't understand who God truly is. And part of the preparation for war would include these priests coming out and encouraging the soldiers. God tells them to go and to to tell the soldiers exactly what they just heard, uh, which is not to let their hearts faint, to not fear or panic or be in dread since the Lord their God would be with them and that he will be the one that fights for them and that he would give them victory. That's what they're telling the soldiers just over and over and over again. And this isn't anything new. What it is is it's a reminder to the greater reality surrounding them. It was a reminder that it wasn't about how many soldiers they had. Um, it wasn't about how sharp their, their swords were or how good their plans were or how excellent their fighters were. It was a reminder that the great conflict that they were about to face would be fought by God. Would be fought by God. And priests have this very special role. They wouldn't normally go out into battle themselves. So if you read Numbers during your Bible plan or whenever else you're reading the book of Numbers, in Numbers 1, what you'd see is that priests aren't numbered uh, along with the fighting men of Israel. So these were specific people who wouldn't go off to war, but that would give the special encouragement to the soldiers before they went out. Um, But it's significant because the role of spiritual caretaker as a a priest... um, would include encouraging and reminding those going into battle of the greater reality that they're a part of. And this is not a task to be taken lightly. This is not kind of like a handy, uh, handing out like fuzzy warm hallmark cards like down the line of battle saying like, go get them, soldier, like you can do this. This is a pivotal, pivotal role in the success um, or failure of a military engagement. It, their encouragement would have profound implications 
for the army of Israel. So think Mercy House. What we need to see from this is do not underestimate the powerful role of encouragement in our everyday lives of faithfully following Jesus. Do not underestimate encouragement. The gift of being able to encourage others in their faith is not this feel-good kind of B-list endeavor second to like preaching and teaching and leadership, right? And then you have like encouraging down here. No, that's not how it's looked at in Scripture. What we're seeing here is that encouragement is is commanded by God and crucial, not just to the spiritual well-being of the soldiers, but their physical well-being as well. This is not just any type of encouragement, though. It's not just a, you're going to do great, go get them. It's very specific. It's a very specific encouragement that the priests were called to give. And what we see is the true soul-strengthening, courage-inducing, fear-destroying encouragement will always be a reminder of our greater reality that we live in, which includes God, what he's done, and what he promises to do. That is the heart of effective encouragement. If you truly want to encourage someone, you you point them to the greater redemptive reality of what God has done and will do. That's how you truly encourage someone. When someone is at war with their bodies in a sickness and fighting a sickness, you don't just tell them, hey man, I hope you feel better, right? That is a form of encouragement, but that's not the encouragement that we're seeing here. The way that you encourage them is that you tell them the truth that even if their flesh and their heart fails, God is going to be their strength and their portion forever, regardless of what happens with their body here. When someone battles the heartbreak of a breakup, um, you don't just tell them that, hey, you'll, you'll rebound eventually. You'll find someone that loves you and that, that deserves your love. No, that, that's not how you encourage them. You tell them that even if you never find someone who loves you and who you can love. Um, God loves you. He sees you as precious in his eyes and he desires you and wants you and wants a relationship with you right now until forever, right? That's how you encourage them. When someone loses their job and is anxious about how they're going to be able to provide for their families, you don't just tell them like, hey, it's going to be okay. Have you ever heard that from somebody when you're going through something really tough and someone says, it's going to be okay? And they might be coming from a good place, but it just never lands well, right? The way that you encourage somebody in this situation um, is that you can remind them that, that God cares for and feeds all of the birds of the sky, right? We see this in Matthew. Um, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store their grain in barns. They don't have bank accounts with emergency funds for when situations like this arise in life. But God cares for those birds, and he cares a lot more for you than he does for those birds, that's how you encourage, truly encourage people. You, you paint a picture of the larger reality that they're a part of, which includes what God has done and what he promises to do. Not just quick little encur- bits of encouragement that, that kind of help someone get through just to the next moment of their pain, but a larger picture. So in all of these circumstances, there are lots of things that you can do to maybe help them. Um, there, there are quick remedies, like I mentioned, to help people kind of forget their pain and their, their misery. But if you want to serve in a deep and a profound way that can help people have victory in a season of war for them, it will be through encouragement that points to the greater reality of who God is, what he has done, and what he will do. So Sunday morning um, is not where we wage war. Right? This is not here on Sunday morning. This is not where uh, we as believers face serious spiritual conflict. 
And so typically, the battlefield of our faith is going to be between Monday and Saturday as we go about our lives outside of these walls. And sure, some of us might be really struggling um, this morning, but everything here this morning that's happening is meant to grow, to nurture, to encourage and cultivate your faith. That's the purpose of this time here as we look to God and worship Him. That should be happening, hopefully. It's out there in the world uh, where we experience real enemies trying to steal and crush the faith that we're trying to build this Sunday morning. So if this is true, if this is the place where, um, where we are getting all of our um, spiritual growth and growing our faith and not where our conflict is, um, then the place where our brothers and our sisters need encouragement is going to be out there every single day. And so my challenge to you, and, and as I take this upon myself as well, um, is to fill the role of priest in encouraging your brothers and your sisters in the midst of the battles of faith that, that we wage every single day in our individual lives. Because just like for Israel, um, godly encouragement can have a pivotal role in the spiritual and even sometimes physical uh, victories that we can experience on a day-to-day basis. So let's move on. Verse 5. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has painted, uh, sorry, planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed the wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful or faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. So as if God's pre-battle checklist couldn't get any more unconventional, um, step three involves whittling down the army. Right, let's, let's whittle this down some more. God gives a handful of reasons um, that are perfectly legitimate reasons that would allow a soldier to leave the battlefront and avoid having to fight. And I, I think God does this for a few reasons, but if we look at the reasons um, that he gives uh, as acceptable passes to go to war, or passes to get out of war, I, I think it's, it's kind of clear. Um, the first set of excuses Um, involve unfinished business at home. So whether it's with the house itself, whether it's with your business, he's he's mentioning the vineyard there, um, or with your wife, um, these are all acceptable reasons to stay at home and to not go off to war. I don't think that dealing with these things are necessarily a religious requirement or or a prerequisite for going to war. Um, I think God is kind of giving some practical wisdom here. I think he's saying if, if you have stuff at home that you need to take care of where other people are relying on you and you have just these, these open relationships that, that need to have some sort of closure before you go off to war, uh, deal with that before you go into war and possibly die in battle. Get your affairs in order. Plan as much as you can for this undertaking. And then let's go fight in the war. And I think God says this um, to weed out people who maybe enlisted on a whim. They were like, oh, this sounds like a good idea. Let's go. And they kind of just leave stuff at home not taken care of. 
I think that he wants people who have carefully considered and fully decided to be a part of the war and, and who have planned accordingly. I think this also weeds out people um, who might just have other interests or distractions that would prevent their undivided attention and devotion in battle. So he puts it out there and he's like, hey, this is a good reason to leave. If people leave because of that, well, clearly their interests are divided, right? Because they took the pass to go home. If they weren't divided, then they'd say, no, those things are taken care of, then I'm going to go to battle. So there's, there's a heart issue that God is looking at here. So after this taking care of business at home uh, piece, we, we see God um, has people who are still afraid, right? He, he has the commanders assess who is still afraid, and he gives them a pass to go home as well. I don't think that this is a macho move, right, where God only wants fearless, brave warriors. Um, but I think even more importantly, that fearlessness is rooted not in machismo, right, uh, but as a result of a trust and a faith in God. If a soldier at this point was still afraid, they had an incorrect assessment of their situation. If they had an incorrect assessment of their situation, um, then their faith was not in God. And if their faith was not in God, this arrangement of trusting God to fight their battles for them wouldn't work. So are you guys following that line of logic there? If there is fear in the soldier, um, that soldier is not fit for battle. Not because they're not manly enough or tough enough or strong enough, but because their heart and their mind were not in the right place to do war alongside God. So I think the bottom line here as we read this passage is I think that God wants people um, to be there who want to be there. He wants people who are devoted and committed to the cause. And he wants people who are trusting in him to do the fighting and the battling for them. God, as Israel's general, he's able to do this kind of thing. He's able to weed out people from the army and be hyper-selective about who participates in war because it's not about them. It's, it, he's not trying to create a, a, a dream team of warriors to go off and win battles. That's not what God is trying to do. God is whittling down this army, and he's done it before. When we read about Gideon, Uh, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but we see that example of the army just being whittled and whittled and whittled and whittled down to, I think the final number is 300 men going against tens of thousands of soldiers. That instance is not to glorify those 300 men. It's to glorify God who would fight those battles for them. So how does this apply to us if we're not soldiers? Well, for most of us, uh, even though we don't wage physical war, um, on, on a physical level, uh, one of the fields of battle for, for us as believers is our ministry, our ministries, the, the things that we do to serve God and others and aid in the growing of God's spiritual and physical kingdom. This becomes our battleground. And so I think this applies to us in two different ways. One, um, there is a, a very practical application of getting our house and our heart in order before we extend ourselves in ministry endeavors. So for some of us, uh, we might be super ambitious and excited to jump onto uh, the many things that God is doing here in the valley that, that require you to serve and spend your time and your energy. But if your home life, if your relationship with your family, your friends are in disarray, if there are things that need to be cultivated and taken care of at home, um, and when we're running off and doing ministry and those things are suffering, I think God would say, hey, 
take care of your family. This is your first church right here, the people that you do life with on a daily basis. So we start there before jumping into war. That's not to say that you shouldn't plug in and be a part of community. That's not what I'm saying. But if you're excited about leading a, uh, a small group throughout the week or leading a Bible study on your campus and your own heart is not in a good place, your own family life is not in a good place, take care of this before you go do that. I think God gives a pass to you just, and all of us just like he does to Israel. And, he's, and, 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 it's, and it's for your own good. He's like, take care of your heart, take care of your family, take care of your house, and then let's go to war. I think that's one practical application. I think another practical application is if you're in a place where um, your heart is in a right, in a good spot, that you're trusting God, um, you're spending time with Him, your family life is looking great, um, and not perfect, but you guys are loving Jesus and, and reading Scripture, and, and that's just a part of your family DNA, um, it might be time for you to go to war. If God has been preparing you and your family unit, um, He's not just doing that so that you guys have a cozy nest at home but he's preparing you to go to battle and to go to war so that his kingdom would grow. And I think the humble, the humble encouragement is that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us um, to grow his church. He didn't need the Israelites to be big and strong in order to have military success. Um, he doesn't need us to build his kingdom. And, and just like he doesn't need Israel to be good fighters with lots of experience, um, I think that he would rather have a few wholly devoted followers than a whole army or even a, a whole church of kind of wishy-washy compromising followers. He wants that tight-knit, all-in group who are just saying, yes, I will do this at whatever cost. And he would rather have a handful of those, and we see this throughout Scripture over and over again, than a room full of people who are compromising, wishy-washy, might go home and run away at any moment. Because God is much less concerned about numbers of people as he is with the hearts of people. That's a theme we see over and over and over again. And that should be encouraging to us because you are not just a body in a chair. You are a person that God loves and wants to see flourish in your faith. So let's read this last section and finish up for the day. Verse 10, when you draw near to the city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you, by peace, uh, to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. You shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, uh, which are not cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you, uh, giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breeds, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the, per the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Je Jeb Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. And one of the more challenging things to discuss and understand is God's stance on war in Scripture. Um, and while culture, I think uh, culture would love the idea of this 
pacifist God who kind of loves everyone, kind of like a Disney mascot, right? You're not allowed to be angry at him. You're just like, hey, yeah, 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 I love you. You guys are awesome. You just give them hugs and pose for pictures. Um, Culture might like that kind of God, but the reality is that we don't see that persona in Scripture. Yes, we absolutely see a loving God who is slow to anger, but we also see a holy and just God who might be slow to anger, but he still gets there, right? Like, he still gets angry um, at sin. When we see God commanding his people to kill other people, it's, it's tough to read. It, it should never uh, be a comfort to us or, or a peace to us. It, it should always irk us a little bit, no matter how mature we are as believers. Um, and I think if it doesn't, then we need to grow in our compassion muscle uh, or something. And while it's uncomfortable and there's nothing good um, that can make it comfortable, um, Scripture also says that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God doesn't command the killing of innocent people because biblically, if we're reading Scripture, there is no such thing as an innocent person. All people, everyone, has fallen short of the perfect righteousness in the glory of God. I think the question, according to a scriptural understanding of the fallenness of man, is not, why would God command Israel to kill other people? I I think it's, why has God allowed sinful men and women to live as long as he has? We've talked about this throughout this this series thus far. Like I said, this is not a t-ball sermon, right? This isn't like, hey, go for it. And I don't expect anybody to easily digest these truths. You shouldn't. You should not take what I'm saying as just a complete gold and and running with it. You should be processing these things, talking to your brothers and sisters. And that's why we have small groups. That's why we encourage discipleship relationships with other believers um, so that these tough, challenging, but necessary theological concepts can be wrestled through, not just quickly dismissed or placed on the back burner. When we read this section, I think that we might tend to shift our attention toward Israel's enemies um, out of compassion, which is good, but then uh, we want to make sure that our focus doesn't remain there. As we're reading this textual unit, um, the focus is on God's relationship with Israel, not Israel's relationship with those around them. And so as Israel is following God, he calls them to engage in quite possibly the most terrifying thing that one can imagine. He calls them to go to war. We can't forget that Israel, um, who um, they are not a battle-hardened group of, of trained soldiers, right? They are, we've got to remember, they are ex-slaves who have wandered homelessly through the desert. Um, the enemies that they're going up against in battle, this is not a schoolyard rumble, right? This is not like a bench-clearing brawl at a football game. We're, we're talking about Israel going up to guarded palace gates, knocking on the door and offering them terms for their surrender. This is a little absurd what they're doing. So what is the prerequisite for victory for them? I think it all goes back to these two. One, it's a fearlessness that flows from trusting in God to fight their battles for them. That's how they're going to have victory. And two, um, a wholehearted devotion and obedience to God. That's it. God's saying, I will fight your fights. I will defeat your enemies. I will guard and protect you. I will give you victory. All you need to do is to trust me and to follow me. I'm going to go there, just walk in my wake, and it's going to be okay. And spoiler alert, um, God gives them victory after victory after victory after victory. 
Now, he allows them to experience defeat as well. It's not like they're batting 100 here. Um, God allows them to experience um, defeat when they stray away from these two things. Um, when they stray away from having faith in God and obeying God's commands. God allows them to experience defeat. Um, but again and again, throughout Scripture, when they put their hope and their trust in God, um, even amidst the most terrifying circumstances, God delivers his people um, and is faithful of his promise to fight their fights, um, to defeat their enemies, to guard and protect them, and to give them victory. And so for us this morning, um, we don't wage traditional warfare, and no one here um, is, is immune to fear. Even though we don't wage war, we're not immune to fear. And while we might not be faced with the same fears that accompany battle um, like Israel was, there are far scarier things than war that we as broken humans must reconcile. And Jesus put it this way in Matthew 28. He says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body uh, and soul in hell. This is a sobering verse for us as humans. As we think about the things that make us afraid and bring us anxiety and can make us scared on a day-to-day basis, I think the reality is that there are far bigger things with an eternal scale um, that should bring us to fear. As we've been going through uh, Deuteronomy, we've been seeing this separation between God and man as a result of sin. And, And we've been seeing glimpses of God's wrath and judgment on that sin. And it's a scary thing. But in this intense text about warfare, we see an image of God's plan being illustrated for us as believers um, in order to appreciate. God led Israel through brutal warfare in part to show them um, and, and us the seriousness of sin. And by, giving, and by giving Israel victory over their enemies as a result of their trust and their faithfulness to God, he was pointing forward to a time when Jesus Christ would fight the ultimate battle to give us the ultimate victory against the ultimate enemy of sin and death. This wasn't God just kind of messing around as as an angry God, letting off some steam, going around and killing people. Everything from his gracious, unmerited selection of a group of people in Israel to the cultivation of these people, to the provision and the protection of these people, to the modeling of trust and obedience, to the displaying of compassion and love, to the, the huge victories that they would experience. It was all with the purpose of pointing to and preparing the way for the ultimate Savior King, Jesus Christ. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after dinner, he took the cup and said, this cup is the, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Even as we take communion we experience a priestly encouragement from Jesus that we see modeled in these verses in Deuteronomy. Um, We do this to remember every Sunday. We do this to remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us, not as a morbid experience to fill us with pity for Jesus, but to remember the great cost at which God bought the final victory for us. So in a moment, you're gonna, uh, we're going to play some music, and if you're new here or, or don't, um, 
are not familiar with how we do communion, we come down the center aisle and stay to your side, and you form a line, and you grab your communion, and then you swing out to the wings and back into your seats. And we encourage you to do this in your own time. Um, And I think that as we take communion this morning, consider it um, an encouraging reminder. Um, As you face whatever battle or war out there, as you leave these doors, you go back into life, let this be the priestly encouragement and reminder of the greater reality that you were a part of this morning. Let me pray for us. God, thank you uh, for how good you are. Thank you for being um, our Father, our God, um, our, our dreadnought warrior, as Scripture calls you. Thank you that, that you are jealous for us and fight for us, will guard us and protect us. Thank you that you promise to keep us um, and to lead us home, God. Lord, I pray this morning as, as we take communion that we would remember um, the great cost of the victory that we have in you. We thank you for your grace in allowing and extending this victory to us. Um, and just like Israel, uh, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to do anything to earn it or merit it. Um, we just need to put our trust and our faith in you and, and listen to you and obey you. God, I pray that wherever we're at, that we would be brought to this place this morning um, of putting our faith and our trust in you um, for the thousandth time or maybe the first time, God. We love you, God. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.